My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. In this podcast, I'd like to highlight some of the content from the June edition of the journal. The first article that I'd like to cover relates to the recovery position being associated with a reduced rate of admission in children with loss of consciousness. Loss of consciousness is often seen but the response of caregivers has been poorly investigated. The recovery position into which an unconscious child can be placed to protect the airway and keep it clear and open is a well-known first aid manoeuvre. In this issue, Martinez and colleagues report a prospective cohort study. 553 children admitted to 11 paediatric emergency units in six different European countries. All were seen following an episode of loss of consciousness. Seizures were the most frequent cause in 278, 147 of those being febrile, followed by vasovagal syncope in 124. Caregivers put the child in the recovery position in just 145 cases. That's 26%. In another 53% of cases, some other manoeuvre was used. Most notable was the potentially dangerous use of shaking in 91 cases. 56% of cases were admitted... The recovery position was independently associated with a reduced rate of admission to hospital, with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.28, with a confidence interval of 0.17 to 0.048. That is highly significant. The authors call for a push to inform and educate about the importance of the recovery position. We as paediatricians have a key role to play in this, particularly as many of the children in this study had been previously admitted to hospital. In an accompanying editorial, Professor Robert Tasker discusses positioning the breathing but unresponsive patient. What's the evidence? There is little published evidence, but Professor Tasker calls for this importance evidence of the benefit of the recovery position to be included in new recommendations for the management of the unconscious patient. The second paper I'd like to cover relates to voice problems in school-aged children following very preterm birth. This is about dysphonia. Dysphonia is a potential outcome of preterm birth. Dysphonia refers to disruption in voice quality, that is the sound produced as exhaled air sets the vocal folds into vibratory motion for speech production. Dysphonia therefore reflects underlying abnormalities in the structure and or function of the larynx. In this issue, Reynolds and colleagues report the outcome of 178 children screened between age 5 and 12. These were children born at 23 to 32 weeks gestation. Participants were randomly selected from a sample 
stratified by gestational age and the number of intubations. Assessment was by a speech therapist. Diagnosis of dysphonia was based on the presence and severity of disturbance to voice. Mild, moderate whereby there was noticeable disruption in quality or severe, basically severe disturbance in quality with or without periods of aphonia. The prevalence of dysphonia was 61%, mild 30%, moderate 23% and severe 8%. Risk factors included female sex, early gestation and duration of intubation. The data presented and the discussion of the topic is interesting. The authors advise routine screening as part of the developmental follow-up of these children. The third paper relates to sleep quality in children and their resident parents when in hospital. Poor sleep in hospital is likely to inhibit recovery and exacerbate stress. In this issue, Strickland and colleagues explore this important issue by semi-structured interviews of co-sleeping parents one week after discharge from hospital. They included 17 parents of 16 children aged between 3 and 12. The interviews explored parents and child sleep quality, factors contributing to this, impact on daytime functioning and factors that could or at least should potentially change. Parents reported that they experienced reduced sleep quality. Noise and light, as well as ward schedules, were identified as key factors. Parents reported that lack of sleep caused difficulties with their own emotional regulation and that of their child, affecting daytime parent-child relationships. They reported a negative impact of sleep deprivation on decision-making about their child's medical care. Many potential modifiable factors were identified. It's worth working through the paper and reflecting on the vulnerability and stress of parents with children in hospital and this being a potentially modifiable factor that may reduce that stress and aid recovery of the child. The fourth article I'd like to highlight relates to fussy eating and parental anxiety and depression. Fussy eating, that is consistently rejecting particular food items, is common, particularly in young children. Maternal postnatal anxiety and depression are common associations, although it is unclear whether these are risk factors or as a consequence of the child's fussy eating behaviour. In this issue, DeBars and colleagues examine this association. This is in 4,746 four-year-olds embedded in a birth cohort. Food fussiness was assessed by a children's eating behaviour questionnaire. A score of greater than three was classified as a fussy eater. Mother's anxiety during pregnancy and the preschool period were associated with higher food fussiness scores. Per point on the anxiety scale, children had an average 1.0 higher score on the food fussiness scale. Similar data was found for antenatal and postnatal depression.
Paternal anxiety was associated in the postnatal but not antenatal period. There was no association with paternal depression. These findings should be interpreted with caution but do imply antenatal and postnatal anxiety and depression in mothers and postnatal anxiety in fathers are risk factors for fussy eating in children. These important factors should be considered in detail when the child with a fussy eating pattern is seen in clinic. The fifth article I'd like to mention relates to normal blood glucose. It's an interesting question, what is the normal blood glucose? This issue includes a comprehensive review of the physiology and evidence. Why it is difficult to define normal, glucose physiology in the term infant, the transition to normal levels after birth, and how to maintain normal glucose integrating the physiological changes relating to fasting and feeding states. It's an excellent read and aids considerably with the understanding of the complexities of controlling blood glucose in clinical practice. The facts are in the paper. This fifth article relates to the sixth article I'd like to mention, which is on the recognition, assessment and management of hyperglycemia in childhood. Clearly a very important topic and this is a very practical review. Hyperglycemia is common and prompt treatment is required to prevent brain injury. In this issue, Gosh and colleagues review the recognition, assessment and management outside the neonatal period. The commonest causes are diabetes mellitus and idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia. Diagnosis is dependent on the investigation at the time of the hyperglycemia in the first instance, although more complex testing may be required if, for example, an endocrine or more complex metabolic disorder is suspected. Metabolic causes such as idiopathic ketotic hyperglycemia are prevented by limiting the duration of fasting. Endocrine causes may require cortisol replacement. In this excellent review, the authors take you through all these issues, include a comprehensive list of the different potential causes, the investigations required during hyperglycemia, the indications for and detail of further investigations and the specifics of treatment for the different potential diagnoses. It's an essential read for the busy clinician and an excellent source of information next time you encounter hyperglycemia in your clinical practice. Editor's Choice this month. I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. The full papers are published on the website. Thanks for listening.